0: GabFest listeners, before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that after we taped today, the Supreme Court announced that it has not identified the person who leaked the draft opinion in Dobbs, which is the abortion decision from last summer. So it's sort of a news announcement of having no information, but we didn't know the court was going to make that announcement today when we taped. Thanks.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest. January 19th, 2023, the Does Alito Hate so do or edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, as ever, by two dear friends who I was just talking about birthdays with. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, who's obsessed with birthdays. Hello, John.
2: Hello, David. I guess I did a little essay on um, on the show on uh, Franklin's birthday this uh, this week. Um, and I haven't gotten sleep for uh,
1: 19 days, so I'm as punchy as can be. And not punchy and not a punching bag, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. This week on the Gabfest, how bad is it that Joe Biden had a bunch of secret documents in his garage next to his Corvette? Then does it matter if Supreme Court justices don't like each other? And then the wizards of Davos say the world has entered a polycrisis. What is a polycrisis? And should we, listen, should we listen to the Davos people? John, you, you're going to degrade the value of your noise if you use it for Davos people. It shouldn't be used just willy-nilly. But
2: it's a high thread count. That's the high thread count version of that noise. I mean, it's been polished and uh, kissed off with the most brilliant Davos. Yes, suitable
1: for a Swiss mountainside, suitable for the Egyptian cotton sheets that they all sleep on. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Garage, home library, old office. The question is, where have I left half empty cups of coffee? Or possibly, where did I lose a set of keys? Or where did they find secret documents that Joe Biden should not have had the biden classified documents fiasco reached high velocity this week discovery of more documents the appointment of robert Hur as an independent counsel to investigate the documents emily what are the legal issues that biden faces how are they similar and dissimilar to the ones that former president trump faces for his secret document hide and seek
0: They're similar in that we're talking about the same statutes, the same laws that try to protect our documents, that try to make sure there's an orderly process of transferring the documents to the National Archives when presidents leave office. The big difference, I think, has to do with intent and level of cooperation with the government once you realize that you have these documents. And so what the Biden people are hoping is that they behaved super responsibly and quickly and uh, worked with the government as best they could to minimize the damage, to turn stuff over, to look for the other documents, as opposed, of course, to President Trump, who, you know, if you believe the government's version of the story, did very much the opposite. One Challenge, I think, that comes across in a long Washington Post story that's like, sort of, inside what happened? How did these documents wind up in these places where they weren't supposed to be? It seems like Biden's lawyers made a decision to try to cooperate with the Justice Department quietly and not to talk to the public about what they found in real time. And that now seems like maybe it's coming back to bite them because it looks like they weren't entirely transparent in the moment. And why did this information dribble out? John, do you feel like the political consequences of that are sort of overshadowing the legal questions right now?
2: It's a political clunker for the Biden administration. It's just bad to be in the same conversation with Donald Trump about anything. And it just is it's just really, really bad. And the fact that they didn't um, uh, talk about it before the election and talk about it the minute they knew about it was probably the wise thing to do, but is also really bad. However. Because we're in the post-Donald Trump era and because Trump and those who um, have adopted his way of thinking and professionalized it in different corners have so warped public conversation, it invites comparison between the two. I mean, the the obvious point is the one you made, Emily, which is this is a blunder. By all evidence, once the Biden team learned that they that they blundered, they did what we all would hope, which is they operated by a set of norms, which means you go and talk to the authorities and you follow through. The fact that they didn't tell the public, there's no legal uh, compulsion, no legal thing that says you have to tell the public. I would like to know your thoughts, Emily, about whether lawyers could have made a good faith case for why they shouldn't tell the public. Obviously, as a political matter, it was smart not to tell the public before an election, Obviously, as a political matter, it's smart for Republicans to try to conflate the fact that the Biden White House didn't tell the public with Donald Trump's refusal to tell the truth to investigators, which is the key distinction here. Trump, by lots of evidence, looks like he obstructed justice, looks like when he was asked where these documents were, took efforts to hide them further. That's the that appears to be the facts. We don't know that for sure. There's special counsel looking into this, but that's the huge difference here, which Republicans are trying to fuzzy up. Um Anyway, it's just I I would like to be able to talk about this and find a way to talk about it because it's not only important for this specific case, but we should be able to talk about things that are politically damaging and maybe even politically stupid
1: without suggesting that there is equivalence. So Republicans are performing outrage about this. Here is James Comer of the House who is spearheading some of the multiverse of Biden investigations complaining on Jake Tapper's CNN show. At the end of the day, my biggest concern isn't the classified documents, to be honest with you. My concern is how there's such a discrepancy in how former President Trump was treated by raiding Mar-a-Lago, by getting the security cameras, by taking pictures of documents on the on the floor, by going through Melania's closet versus Joe Biden. They're like, okay, you, you're, you're personal lawyers who don't have security clearance. You know, they can go through, they can just keep yeah. looking and keep looking and, and, you know, determine whatever's there. That's not Equal treatment, and we're very concerned. And there's a lack of trust here at the Department of Justice by House Republicans. That's the outrage. So I, I get that, but there's a big difference in how President Biden and his team reacted and how President Trump and his team reacted. The FBI searched Mar a Lago because Trump, for more than a year, refused to turn over documents to the National Archives and the Justice Department, which was trying to get them back into secure hands. Trump and his lawyers lied about it. Trump lied about not having classified documents, did not keep them in a secure location, did not comply with a subpoena, but said he had. And that that search warrant, which Trump forced out into the open through his legal machina- machinations, that cited laws that Trump might have violated, including the Espionage it- Act.
0: John, to answer your question about whether there could have been a legal rationale for keeping quiet, I mean, I think what the Biden lawyers would say is that The Justice Department keeps the beginnings of investigations like this quiet, right? I mean, the idea is that while you're gathering evidence, you don't know if there's wrongdoing, that that's something that's internal. And so I think that's the rationale that they were trying to be very by the book about the Justice Department regulations, whether that satisfies people as an explanation, given how this is rolled out, uh, is a different matter, right? Right. And
2: also, there is no political obligation to say damaging things about yourself before an election. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And if you don't say damaging things about yourself before an election, you're being a politician, which isn't to say that that's the same as actively lying about things when you're asked about them, which which there's no evidence the Biden team did, but which uh, obviously former President Trump did and does regularly.
0: Right. I mean, I think that in the ideal playing out of this for the Biden administration, first of all, they don't find documents in multiple locations over a matter of days and weeks. They find one bunch in one place, but also they control the story. They make the announcement with the Justice Department or without the Justice Department. Instead, it broke, I believe, on CBS, right?
2: Yes, okay, ma'am, anyway. it did. That's there right. Adriana go. Diaz. Go get him. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then you you look like you were hiding something, even if, yeah.
1: Do you think... As a matter of politics, John, that Biden at this point, now there's a now there's a uh, special prosecutor that Biden should try to speed everything up, reveal everything, get it, all everything out quickly and clear the air, you know, sit for whatever deposition he's supposed to sit for. Or do you do what Trump generally did in situations, fight it every turn and reduce, therefore, the amount of damaging stuff that ever gets out or maybe make make it make it impossible for any damaging stuff ever to get out by being resistant.
2: Great question. And this is why I think it's an interesting template. So what you're talking about is the old-fashioned full hangout, right? Remember when Chris Christie had the bridge thing, he had a press conference in which he answered every question until people ran out
1: of questions. That's the old-fashioned way to do it. That really worked for him. He ended up with a 7% approval rating out of office and a disgrace, but go ahead.
2: Did he end up with a 7% approval rating?
1: Oh, yeah. His, well, ultimately, yeah. When he left, By the time he left office, it was just in the the lowest level that anyone had ever reached. It was incredible.
2: Well, it wouldn't have gotten any better had he not done that. Um, I mean, and so I'm not, I'm not here to defend Chris Christie. That's the old-fashioned way to do it, because there is a norm that a public official is not hiding anything. I don't think the Biden team can do that because it's a legal proceeding, and so he doesn't want to put his foot in it in the middle of a legal proceeding. And so that would be dumb. But the reason that the Biden team can't do the Trump route, which is to um, – just repeatedly lie um, and turn the entire operation of the presidency towards discrediting the person doing the investigation and changing, um, you know, down being up and up being down and denying gravity in public repeatedly is because they don't have any of those instincts. The the, the White House, even if you think it's a bumbling group of, of know-nothings, their instincts have been honed by years and years of public service in which you, um, you know, you spin and you maybe don't tell uh, the full truth all the time, but you operate within a set of boundaries and that's their instinct. And so they wouldn't be very good at it. They would be awful at trying to play
1: the, the Trump route. Emily, where do you stand on the kind of the extremely strict substantive question here? There's one school of thought, which is that, which just letting you know, I go to the school. Everything is classified. Everyone has classified documents. At least every president who's allowed to box them up and take them for a bit. The only real issue is how safe did you keep them, and what did you do when you realized you had them? The other school of thought is these are the sacred jewels of America. They are Ark of the government covenant. To mislay them is to put the Republic at risk. And my god, what has what has Joe Biden done?
0: <laughs> so obviously, the government overclassifies. There's lots of evidence of that. And yet, sometimes to mislay these documents is to put the republic at risk, right? I mean, there are some secrets that are not supposed to be hanging around next to your Corvette, locked up in the garage. They're supposed to be really protected. And because the government classifies everything, and because legitimately we don't know what was in these particular documents— It's really hard to judge how much risk there was. I do think that if we're going to have this law, which we do, and I think we need, there should obviously be less classification, but also there should be a really careful process and presidents should follow it. And I don't really buy the idea like, oh, everyone does it. It's no big deal. Even if you're right about that, it just seems like it is a problem on the margins, on the edges.
2: You know, there are some things that are not known. The damage of what might be in these classified documents could be possibly significant. I mean, what's in the documents might have a national security issue related to it that has nothing to do with whether Joe Biden was hiding these documents or not. And also, um, let's not, you know, slouch into the posture of taking a White House at its word. There's no reason to think that the White House is telling the truth. They might be. Great. Great. Special counsel will figure that out. But that also needs to be figured out, too, in terms of when they found them, what was up with them, why they took them. All evidence suggests that they behaved um, the way you're supposed to. But, you know, we'll we'll uh, there may be more than just the sort of pain of overly classified documents.
1: Emily, just to get us out of here, was it legally required and or politically required for Merrick Garland to appoint a special prosecutor in this case?
0: I mean, look, Merrick Garland is the attorney general. He has discretion. He could have stared down this challenge, I suppose. But, I mean, if you look at the law, you're supposed to go check out what happened. And then once John Lausch, who is not the same as the appointed special prosecutor, but the first person who looked into this, once he said we should follow up and investigate, yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Garland was bound to start with the special prosecutor and look i i still think that if the biden people are telling the truth this is fine this is maybe good we get a complete explanation they'll be able to point to this investigation and say this is how it's different from donald trump
1: slate plus members you get bonus segments on the gabfest other podcasts that slate produces member exclusive episodes extra segments no ads on any podcasts unlimited reading on the slate site and today we're going to have a bonus segment where we're going to talk about the most uh, gratifying, the most uh, soul-fulfilling, the most happy-inducing jobs there are in the world. There's a great new article in the Washington Post. They surveyed people in lots of jobs, and we're going to talk about the results and reveal what is the most gratifying job to have in America. It is not Podcaster, apparently. Go to slate.com slash to become a member today. This episode of the Gaffest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating Your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos, but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. In an article in The Atlantic this week, Stephen Maisie argues that the Supreme Court justices do not seem to be getting along. Reading between the lines of the angry liberal dissents and Dobbs, the various peevish speeches by Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, the body language of John Roberts, Maisie speculates that the court is riven by personal conflict, notably identifying kind of an Alito Thomas faction that's annoyed at. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, annoyed at the public and annoyed at liberal justices. Emily, what do you make of this? Do you think that the civility of the court has vanished? Does it matter if it has?
0: So I think it is fairly clear that some of the relationships are fraying, that Roberts is having trouble with parts of the court, probably especially thomas and anyone who's very much lined up with him because all of the kerfuffle of virginie thomas and thomas ruling in cases um you know related to january 6th like that just is a mess that's not the look that roberts who's the person who you know his name is on the court wants and if there are any efforts going on to try to rein thomas in then that will cause a lot of um A lot of tension and potentially have implications for, you know, how alliances play out. They're never supposed to horse trade in the cases, but like, obviously, they can do that. And we know from, you know, past reporting on the court that's happened at other moments. Whether this is, like, you know, really different from other moments of tension in the past is obviously harder to say. I think there have been eras in which there's been a lot of um, collegiality and very deliberate efforts on the part of all the justices to get along and also to put a face on getting along. But obviously, they get mad and snippy with each other regularly in some way. I mean, think about it. Like, they are both... Close colleagues having to work as a team of nine in producing opinions and decisions. And also they are these separate planets who have chambers that are devoted only to their interests. They have often significantly different ideas about how much they speak to each other, how much they send notes to each other, whether their clerks talk to each other. And it all just kind of adds up to an environment in which there's a lot of potential for people to be close and also people to get really pissy.
2: Emily, was there a fraternity of law that existed in the old days? Your pals on the Law Review, even though you have different points of view, and basically you are acculturated to having strong debates about ideological positions, but being able to handle each other socially and otherwise in the world of law that has changed so that by the time they get to the court, they've been raised in a system where you're more siloed than you would have been in the 1960s, 70s, 80s?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I do think that there probably was more of that. No, it also probably uh, tracked the fact that the the law world was more homogenous, right? If everyone is like white men from similar backgrounds, it can be sometimes easier for everyone to kind of march along in not exactly unison, but sort of in tandem. So I don't want to go too far down that path. I do think that some of the personalities on the court in the past, there was a real premium for getting along. So I was just reading about this exchange between Justice Brennan and Justice Lewis Powell. So they were not ideological compadres. They had significant differences. And there's this moment um, where they're trying to figure out their opinions, their separate opinions in um, this big affirmative action case in 1977 called Backey. And toward the end, Justice Powell put a line in his opinion that suggests that Justice Brennan is approving of quotas for Jews. And he puts it in He's and what Powell's arguing is not crazy, like it's not mean spirited. It's not irrational. He's just kind of pointing out that this is a potential implication of Justice Brennan's argument, which is that you only worry about a a race based distinction if there is a badge of inferiority, which wasn't the issue for Jewish quotas. And Brennan writes this long narrative about how everyone's deliberating in the case. And he said that this line of Justice Powell, he says, this was too much. And then either he or another justice, it's not quite clear, calls Justice Powell and says, can you take this out? And Justice Powell apparently was surprised, thought that the line had a basis, but said, if this is personally offensive to any justice, then yes, I will take it out. That's kind of unimaginable <laughs> in the current environment. Like when you think of the scathing way that Justice Scalia used to write, that Justice Alito absolutely writes in sometimes, it's just a little hard to imagine that they would care that someone not on their ideological team was offended.
2: And also, you get in the in the speaking circuit, y- you get lots of huzzas if you are more pugilistic than maybe you were back then.
0: Yes, and Justice Alito in particular really seems to go for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have a public persona that is a profound public persona in a way that I don't feel that justices did a generation ago. I, I, I would note that what's happening in the Supreme Court, if what Maisie is saying is is true, is really not surprising. It reflects like a divide that exists in American life. We should not be surprised that the court has it. Most workplaces, I mean, I think one of the things about most workplaces is in most workplaces, you are very like the people you work with. And you don't tend to have, therefore, don't tend to have a ton of political conflict. Or if you do have a ton of political conflict, institutions that that where people are are ideologically diverse tend to make their workplaces very much about work and and not about these other things. So, like, if you think of the military, the military is filled with all kinds of different people. But the military, you don't, like, it's just not a place where discussions of politics are intrinsically part of doing your job. It's, like, very much about, it's a job-oriented workplace. This is a workplace which is people of different ideological stripes who have to talk about politics all the time. And it's not like, really, they're not like, they're not workplaces like this much anywhere else. And it's no wonder they might rub each other raw i also think that like when you think about this i kind of bracket i suspect that a lot of what people perceive as the kind of personal tension is really alito and thomas based they are two angry old men i suspect that justice jackson and justice barrett who are ideologically different do share tips on summer camps and that brett kavanaugh and elena kagan catch a game together now and again i i bet that i bet that is these two it's like the old dudes and then the rest.
2: It is extraordinary that what we learned in the January 6th testimony is that Jenny Thomas was talking about her husband when she was texting the chief of staff of the Trump administration, goading them on to overthrow an election, and was saying that her best friend, I think that's the phrase she used, which was the kind of coy um, word she used in the text, was telling her, was essentially encouraging her in this. And that was the a Supreme court justice about overthrowing an election. Like this is, this is insane. I mean, and that does, that's not an ideological debate about affirmative action or the second amendment, or, um, it's just, it's, it's about the, the public perception of the institution. And that does seem to me to, to reflect on the, on the, on the club that they are all a member of. And I wonder if that is also something that's a part of this here too. Um, it just represents kind of Thomas's view of the club. It seems, it seems from the available facts to be a more selfish view than a, one that rep- recognizes that they all have a kind of duty to keep, it, um, keep its reputation alive, no matter what their ideological positions.
0: Right. And then you have Roberts, who has a kind of institutional prerogative, but also responsibility maybe to try to do something about this at a moment in which he's also on the margin of the conservative faction in some ways, which is pretty fascinating. Is this bad? Like, what, you know, Justice Kagan started calling out the court over the summer for being out of step with the American people, essentially, in a kind of warning-like way. I mean... Don't we want the justices to be realists in some way? I find the pretend that like, oh, this is all totally normal and everything's wonderful to be in some ways worse personally.
1: That's a totally fair way of framing it. I I think I guess I would go back to the, what does it hurt you to be thoughtful and generous towards the people you work with? And so, but I suppose if your obligation, if your Justice Kagan is much higher, your obligation is to this larger sense about alerting the public that that the court has gone awry—that's um, more important than the than making sure that that Clarence Thomas is pleased with everything you say. I do hope they work together collegially. I think it's valuable if they work together collegially, even if they are ideologically at odds. Do I, one thing we haven't talked about at all. None of us has said the phrase "leak." Like
0: I how was much, just going to ask,
1: how much of this do you do you think? How much of the, the kind of tension around the court is, can be traced to the mistrust generated by the leak of the Dobbs decision?
0: Or the investigation of the leak of the Dobbs decision.
1: Yeah, which apparent, apparently has yielded nothing as yet. Well, I
0: mean, there's a little bit of a little nugget of news from a Wall Street Journal story by Jess Braven, which is that supposedly they're narrowing down on a small group that, um, according to his reporting, might include a law clerk. So no, nothing definitive. <laughs>
1: What a shock! I could have. I, by the way, I might have been able to say that six <laughs> months ago. But no, that's good reporting. No, it's actually factual reporting. But I mean, we've had zero like, information. Uh, yeah. So obviously, yeah. that's it's a small group. A group that might have done it is a small group, and it probably contains a law clerk. Is it
2: the is it the investigation that caused the rancor, or is the leak itself the boil that popped up as a result of these um, roiling forces?
0: Uh, inquiring minds, I don't know. No, I think ladder. it's, it's okay. definitely
2: the latter. It's a court in which uh, people are either suspicious of what Roberts was going to do or, I mean, we don't know who the linker is, but um, it, it's an imbe- it, it seems to me that the leak takes place because um, somebody has decided that it's gotten so poisonous that you got to take this into your own hands.
0: Though it doesn't seem to have any effect whatsoever, that leak, but I guess you could have still hoped that it would.
1: The global elite is back where it should be, when it should be. The Davos conference... With canceled during pandemic, then it was relocated to May. It is now up where it belongs in winter at the Swiss uh, ski town. A gathering of world leaders and multinational CEOs, Davos is globalism incarnate plus fondue. It's the place where a thousand people who flew in on four hundred private jets sagaciously deplore climate change. No one takes themselves more seriously than someone at Davos, and so comes no surprise. The, the Davos elite has thoughts. They have big ideas. They want to share them. And one of the big ideas this year is polycrisis. John, what's a polycrisis?
2: What is a polycrisis? Well, at first my instinct was to um, uh, was to say, like, it's a complicated world and polycrisis is just a new name for an old truth, which is that things are complicated. But a friend of mine who I won't name, uh, because she, I don't know whether she wants to be named or not, but who is, a, um, um, a big wig in these, uh, these foreign policy climbs, Hillary Clinton, um, said, you know, yes,
1: and Albright, uh,
2: says, you know, yes, foreign policy is always complicated. There's always more than one crisis at once, which is why the presidency, it turns out it's a hard job. You probably should elect people who like recognize that. But anyway, but, but her point was that actually we are in an acutely complicated moment and you have um, some of the things that are taking place at the same time is you have democratic backsliding. Um, in various countries, you have the notion of a system that can handle crises is, um, is faltering, whether it's on COVID or climate or immigration or various conflicts, the response perhaps to Russia or Russia's, you know, um, and, and then also competing pressures um, that are a result of, um, well, mostly Russia. I mean, when you think about what Russia has unleashed plus COVID kinks in the supply chain, um, totally destabilized the world food distribution program, energy insecurity, security, which was there already, but it completely messed that. So it's the way in which these crises are all interconnected, um, and are all individually big, but then kind of combined to be big that that makes polycrisis uh the word of the moment but i think it's gotten so into such a buzzword thing um, that that i don't know whether it has any actual meaning in conversation anymore
1: i'm so irritated by davos people that the mere fact that they identify polycrisis as a thing makes me reflexively think that it's not a thing or that it's not bad and that's that's a real problem in me because these are these are smart people they are smart people and they do think about the the complicated issues in the world and so even though i i really want to say no everything is fine there's it's just like the world as it has been and we're we're just heading towards the same future we were always heading towards i i it, i shouldn't
2: i think you put your finger on a davos problem which is that solutions that are the result of the davos acuity are swallowed by the fact that they come from davos which is that um, a lot of these big, huge forces that participants may come up with subtle understandings of and perhaps even solutions to, if they get the Davos label or the Davos mindset, the rest of the world, which has to get on board with these solutions, might very well think like, well, you swells are up there in your you know fancy world and you're basically telling us to behave a certain way. And that's that goes for individuals, but it also goes for countries and therefore- we're not going to do this, not because it's wrong by some empirical measure, but just because like, we don't want to be told what to do. And we've seen that obviously repeatedly over and over again in various COVID ways and other things.
1: I think the value of Davos is that it does, it's sort of convening power, but it's more that it convenes attention, which is that it, it actually makes people like us who don't pay as much attention to some of these global issues during the course of the year as we should sort of notice them, even if to, even if it's to notice them and kind of like, oh, those Davos people are talking about it. And so one of the ones that really jumped out for me this time is they, the Davos people identified the cost of living crisis as the world's worst immediate problem. And I, I confess that this is just my own sort of blindness and ignorance and laziness. I hadn't really thought about that. I knew yes the increased cost of food and fuel in you know that affects us here in the US uh is also obviously has much greater impacts elsewhere in the world and it's merely annoying for people here but it's life threatening for huge swaths of populations across the world and and I confess like that to see it identified as the world's most dangerous crisis of the moment made me sort of think and berate myself for not having paid attention to it. So I will. I, I think that, for me, was important.
2: And to think about it systemically rather than just the product of momentary spikes in inflation that's all going to be fine once the Fed gets us to a soft landing and we'll all move on and go back to a right. happy place. Right. Right. right the right. idea that yeah. That, yeah. D- that doesn't exist. I mean, it exists for some people, but the crisis is there and still continues. Yeah. And I think also these things having gone to not Davos, but Some events where you have like, you know, names, you know, all in a room being um, smart and um, elite together. There is a collective kind of, hey, let's go fix this. I mean, Elon Musk, as much as he's derided his um, Starlink solution in Ukraine, which is probably responsible among certainly let's I think it's probably one of the, the private industry effort in Ukraine that's responsible for this for success different from what governments do. Like that's a Davos kind of solution, you know, to a problem. Um, And it didn't come out of Davos. But my point is that that's the kind of thing that gets cooked up in these kinds of meetings. And that's not, you know, that's a that's a big deal. There's a benefit to that kind of competition among elites when they get together in, you know, rarefied atmospheres.
1: So there's, there's one other theme, that seems prevalent this year, which is that globalism as traditionally understood has come to an end and that the world has sorted itself into these different blocks. One roughly organized around China, of which Russia is kind of a satellite and the other roughly organized around the U S of which and and Europe. Um, And does that seem alarming to you, Emily?
0: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. I like (laughs) that.
1: he's <laughs> like can we just talk about can we just talk about abortion please yeah, It's yes. an easy topic I mean, like what that. Is-
0: Sorry, I just I don't know whether to be. I like really don't know the answer because I also (laughs) just don't even know if that like is that really true. I mean, we're still trading all over the place. Like I don't know. I find we're friendshoring,
1: Emily. We're inshoring. We're near
2: shoring,
0: Exactly. And they just came up with a new one. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there are. You know, we are. The U.S. is taking serious steps to keep semiconductors and technology from China in a way that I think is consistent with what they're identifying at Davos, which is that the walls, you know, the walls are going up in these um, enclaves. But I think it feels like soon enough, I mean, we're coming after destabilization of Russia, COVID. If those things pass, it seems that that I think with the point you were making, Emily, is we still seem to be trading with. People will go where trade, is easiest and best for them. And that will, I I think, might make some of these walls go back down again.
0: I mean, it does seem like globalization did not deliver benefits, you know, in an even-handed way to different people um, who are differently economically situated, mostly in the United States, right? It seems like it basically lifts up societies that were behind us in terms of income. But hasn't worked out so great, like for people who used to make stuff in the Rust Belt Uh, and elsewhere, too. So there is this way in which the inside of COVID, right, was that like it would be better to make some of this stuff at home for everybody. And maybe that is a real thing that's happening.
2: Is there a word for things that are um, that highlight weaknesses in the general approach so that something has a something has a benefit, even though it doesn't intend to? So, of course, the other benefit of Davos is it points out all the people who aren't in the room. And, and, and raises the question why they're not in the room and reminds you that there's a benefit to having a more diverse gathering where, solute, you know, if you're seeking for solutions, you it should have a kind of diversity that might not be available in, in Davos. And that that's not the intent of Davos to point out that weakness, but by convening and becoming a, pum- a punching bag it sort of elevates that as well, which is that if you really do care about solutions, that maybe you should think about trying to solve them in a different way. And here's the different way. So I don't know what that word
1: is, but- Please mint it, mint it. Please mint it. Get a fancy Swiss mint that you can get on your fancy Swiss pillow in Davos. I can't believe we just did a whole segment about Davos and there was very little class warfare, none of the class warfare. I guess because we belong to the same stupid global elite, like we're the same- fancy educated rich rich americans that it's catering to
2: i mean we weren't invited so we're not really just to be fair <laughs> i
1: bet but, we could get invited do you think we could do a lot but i think, uh, but, I
2: think that, but i think david is this <laughs> let's go to cocktail
1: this, chatter and they'd bring wait,
2: wait, wait 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 no i think you're right is your point david that by um even though there's been an implicit um you know, I don't know if sneer is the right word, but arched eyebrow or whatever in the whole conversation, that if you at least even seek to find the good in something like Davos, you are therefore in the elite that um, Davos is kind of about.
1: Yeah, and also just being interested in it. Why are we interested? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's the club you've put us in.
1: Let's go to actual cocktail chatter. Let's go to cocktail chatter. If, in fact, Emily, you were sitting in uh, the Hotel La Tour on, on uh, the Grand Rue in Davos, uh, snifter of brandy in one hand, cigar in the other hand, fondue fork in the third hand. What would you be chattering
0: about? I feel like this is the perfect Davos chatter. It's about a story published by PennLive, um an uh, investigative news site in Pennsylvania. The um, writer is Joshua Vaughn. And the headline is, Dauphin County made millions on jail phone calls and spent it on staff, perks, and contractors. And this is just something that makes me so frustrated and sad. It costs a lot of money often to make phone calls from jail. And in this particular case, Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, vacuumed up um about three and a half million dollars in commissions from phone calls and from people using their tablets. And then the money was supposed to go to operating the jail and benefiting people who are incarcerated there. For example, they had a really terrible HVAC system, and someone had actually died of hypothermia because of it. Instead, The county spent a lot of money on perks for staff. The best one was $300,000 to purchase gun range memberships at what seems like a fancy gun range that costs much more than other ones. And this weird detail, the county twice purchased more than 480 memberships, even though the jail had fewer than 300 full-time employees. I mean, this is just sort of basic local government corruption, I guess, but it's really, really on the backs of poor and disadvantaged people. And I just um thank Joshua Vaughn and Penn Live for this reporting, and I hope Dauphin County does something different.
1: Where is Dauphin County?
0: Dauphin County is the county in Pennsylvania with that includes Harrisburg, which is the state capital.
1: John, what is your what is your chatter?
2: Okay, my chatter is about First of all, somebody's going to ask us why one of us didn't um, hate chatter about those pandas. Because um, there was a whole mess of pandas that was born um, uh, recently. And because David used to be obsessed about pandas on the Gabfest. But that's not what my chatter is about. My chatter is about Adolfo Kaminsky. An amazing um, obituary in the New York Times last week. 97 years old, he died. And his talent was that he knew how to remove supposedly indelible blue ink from paper now why did that matter well because he was in france during the nazi occupation and his expertise enabled him to erase jewish sounding names that were officially um, inscribed on french ids and food ration cards and substitute those jewish sounding names with typically gentile sounding names and thereby save hundreds and hundreds of Jewish lives. Wow. And in one particularly acute moment, he was asked to produce 900 birth baptismal certificates and ration cards for 300 Jewish children. And he was given three days to finish the assignment. And he basically worked for two straight days and he forced himself to stay awake by saying, in one hour, I can make 30 blank documents. And if I sleep for one hour, 30 people will die. Just an amazing story, an amazing life. He was the subject of a of a um documentary called The Forger, which uh the Times opinion section did. So you should go watch that too. But I'm also certain that there will be a major motion picture soon enough. I mean, this is just it's so it's such a cinematic and poignant story. Wow. I'd never heard
1: that. Wow.
2: I know. I'm just so, so shocked that I hadn't either.
1: Uh my chatter it's p- a pedestrian chatter which is that uh, if you've been listening to the gap fest probably over the p- generation that we've been doing it, i've talked about his dark materials the philip pullman tri- trilogy of books many 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 times it's one of my favorite it is probably my favorite set of books favorite trilogy of books certainly and it's a series of fantasy novels and it's been adapted different ways there was a bad movie a couple of years ago of the first book, but there recently has been an HBO series, which I believe I also chattered about. Uh, and the HBO series is now reached its third and final season. It's covering the third book, the Amber Spyglass. And uh, I would have said the first two series, in fact, I probably said this, were just not very good at all, really not very good at all. But the third season is kind of great. It is really interesting. The book is a very wild, insanely ambitious book which, which, you know, ending death and killing God are just minor plot points in, in the whole book itself. Uh, and if you were skeptical or if you kind of gave up on the series, give it, a, give it a chance. There's some great stuff in this third series. And I think I identified one key reason why it's better, uh, which, which is that um, one of the major actors in the first two seasons is Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of terrible. Hamilton. And he is terrible in it. <laughs> exactly. He's a terrible actor. He is so so incredibly terrible as this laconic Western balloon pilot. It was it's like watching a kids play almost. He's he's that bad, and so whatever he was on screen, which was frequently, it was agonizingly bad. And there's just much 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 less of him in the third season, and that makes it um, that makes it uh, redeemable. So check so can out. I
0: just start with the third season? I watched part of the first season, thought it was bad, stopped.
1: Yeah, you could start with the third season. It'd be okay, fine. Good. Yeah yeah um it's actually an interesting case also the main actress the main actor uh who plays lyra uh, has grown up and she's she has grown up in the course of doing this and she's really grown up and i didn't think she was particularly good in the first season and this season i think she's tremendously good like she has she's become she's grown into being a, a, a great actor listeners you sent us a lot of chatters this week as ever, you sent us great chatters. You emailed them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And you tweeted them to us at, at Slate gabfest. And we appreciate it when you tell us something you would be chattering about at your cocktail party, some work of culture, some historical episode that you find wonderful or strange or horrifying. And our chatter this week comes from Maureen O'Neill.
0: Maureen here, longtime listener from Ireland. And my chatter is about a remarkable podcast that you should all start listening to. The podcast is the second season of I'm Not a Monster, which focuses on Shamima Begum, the schoolgirl who ran away from the UK in 2015 to join ISIS, and has since had her citizenship revoked. There have only been two episodes, but the journalist, Josh Baker, has been working on the story for eight years, and it's told with such empathy and care. It's truly a feat of investigative journalism. If the first series is anything to go by, we're in for a gripping ride. Happy listening. Oh my god,
2: I got <laughs> I got chills listening to that accent. Oh. Oh.
1: Shouldn't we just replace the three of us with oh. people with Irish accents? Oh. I was like yes. I can't wait to get back.
0: Have you guys seen The Banshees of Sharon? Yes.
1: Jedi? Did you? Can we
0: talk about that at some point? Yes. yes. David, can you watch it so we can talk about it cuz it really okay. would be a good slate plus. It I would swear.
2: be. And can I just do this as a way of teasing it? Emily, your what was your expectation going into the movie? Had you been had it been given a rubric for you? Had it been given a did, What were you expecting?
0: Oh, I watched the trailer and thought it was a comedy.
2: Okay, that's all you need to say. I had I read something and it was classified as a comedy and I think that that is key to my reaction to the movie and we'll talk about that when David watches
1: it. <laughs> That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. Follow us on Twitter at @slategabfest. Email chatter to us at slate.com. Are you trying to say something, John, as I finish up the credits?
2: No, no, no. I just remembered, you know, I don't think people know enough about the role that podcast Ops played in The Raid on Entebbe.
1: <laughs> okay. Great for Emily Bazelon and John DeGruz, sounds like who's, it sounds like the secret military. <laughs> it sounds David like Plus. a secret
2: military <laughs> podcast ops.
1: That's why I said it that way. Do this you? is a job for podcast ops. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, we are talking about a really fun story that the Washington Post did. They took the Bureau of Labor Statistics American time use survey and analyzed uh, a bunch of things. They looked at when people were happy, uh, what they were doing when they were happy, and where they were happy, and and how satisfied they were when they were doing—and they looked at lots of different activities, both work and non-work activities, to determine what jobs made people the happiest and were most satisfying, and what jobs were— unhappy making, and least satisfying, and also various other forms of human activity. Um, so, John, this really, this really tickled you. So do you want to start off by revealing the number one job there is for human satisfaction?
2: Yes, the, the lumberjacks. I mean, we could have guessed it. The reason that I love this story and the work is um, it's, kinda, it's an intellectual scoop, in a way, I mean, there's this huge data set and they dove into it. And I just love that as an intellectual exercise. That's number one. The second one is that it is both a series of findings that we can talk about. And we can talk about lumberjacks and people in agriculture and healthcare and the various, business, the various jobs that people are in and why they deliver happiness and meaning. But to me, it's really interesting because it delivers a structure for thinking about work in, in the article that is itself super meaningful. And what they did was they judged work on happiness scale, on the meaningfulness scale and the stress scale. And the distinction between meaningfulness and happiness is something that I've talked about a lot and that obviously people have written lots of books about. And the idea is essentially being happy and having meaning are two very distinct things. And that in fact, one in life will have a more fulfilling experience if it is meaning that you are engaged in seeking um, less than sort of quote unquote happiness. and whether you believe that or not, it's very interesting to talk about. So lumberjacks win. They, they score high on both the meaningful and the happiness. So it's great to be chopping, but it's also, um, I mean, it's just fun in the moment, but also you feel like you're doing something, you're contributing to a larger uh, set of values that you are in concert with. Whereas in healthcare, high li- I think high healthcare worker um, scored the highest on the meaningfulness scale, um, but but much lower on the happiness scale. That kicks off an entire th- set of thoughts and conversations about our, um, you know, the, the crucial workers during the pandemic who slogged through and got, you know, saved,
1: you know. That was just a, a snippet from our Slate because Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com GabFest Plus to become a member today.